Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. One in three adults in the U.S. and one in five children is clinically obese. In his new book, Salt, Sugar, Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us, Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times investigative reporter Michael Moss argues that many of the big companies in the processed food industry are at least partly to blame. He reports that these big food companies use cutting-edge technology to calculate the so-called bliss point of sugary sodas and to enhance the mouthfeel of fat. And he says that the food giants have used these techniques straight from the playbook of big tobacco to redirect concerns about the health risks of their products and that uh, uh, some concerned executives confess it would be impossible to produce truly healthy alternatives to their products, even with serious government regulation, because the big companies are as addicted as millions of Americans to the seductive trio of salt, sugar, and fat. And Michael Moss joins me. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Uh, so uh, these are some astounding numbers. Uh, processed food uh, accounts for roughly $1 trillion, with a T a year in sales, employs uh, about 16 million people. And as I mentioned uh, top of the program there, uh, one in three adults in the U.S., one in five children are clinically obese. And uh, I believe you're pointing out these two facts are not coincidental. There's some relationship there. I was really surprised at the reporting and research um, in doing that for the book, how how much it was sort of being inside a detective industry, uh, inside a detective story and getting inside the $1 trillion food industry. Because, you know, in these companies are cabals of insiders who for years have been fighting to push their companies towards sort of a healthier direction in their products. And look, we've always known that eating too much of these foods, the foods I kind of like to call the foods that you hate to love, can make you obese or otherwise ill. But what we now know from the documents that I was able to access and interviews with top officials is that, you know, the companies have been acutely aware of this as they continue adding heaps of salt, sugar, fat to their products. I wonder if you could tell me about, uh, and you say the processed food industry began, you know, over a century ago, but really ramped up 1950s, right? It was really in the 1950s when the head of General Foods, which was the now merged with Kraft Food Giant, it had a thousand researchers at its Terrytown, New York facility, um, really sort of put its eye on the notion of convenience foods. The head of the company had come up through the marketing side, Charles Mortimer, and coined the terms convenience foods. And it was really then that you start seeing the industry go after formulating, they call it engineering, designing their products and marketing their products to really sort of hit this turning point in America, which is, you know, Wives, especially working outside of the home more increasingly, our lives becoming more stressful, and providing what the industry saw as this, you know, as as foods that are more convenient, more accessible, lower cost, um, and of course, utterly tasty. And you then you you know that's when you sort of start seeing the development of some really you know amazing icons like Tang, the orange juice. Uh, pseudo-orange juice substitute, um, some of the more sugary breakfast cereals, <laughs> excuse me, and on and on. You have a whole chapter devoted to Lunchables. This is sort of, you see, as emblematic of, uh, of what uh, a lot of the company is trying to do. Yeah, Lunchables is um, just a fascinating story. I spent time with the 
um, the head of the team that developed Lunchables for Oscar Mayer. On one level, um, Lunchables was a solution to the problem that Oscar Mayer was facing back in the 80s. We were eating less red meat as a country out of concern for saturated fat and salt. Oscar Mayer knew this. It was scrambling to do something about it. It turned to its, its smartest people and said, look, can you help us repackage our red meat in ways that would make it more attractive to people. And the team that developed the Lunchables went to work, studied other consumer products that had been usually successful, came up with this TV dinner type tray with little compartments in which they put small pieces of, of bologna or ham or, or red meat and combined it with pieces of cheese and then crackers because they, they couldn't use uh, bread because it wouldn't last on the shelf for the few months that they needed the Lunchables to, to last, and then packaged it in this sort of yellow school, in the school bus yellow cover and started marking it. It was a tremendous success in the first year in the late 80s. Sold, uh, I think it was $218 million, which is just you know the equivalent of a gusher in the food uh, engineering creation front. But what's fascinating about the, the, the Lunchables is that the people at Oscar Mayer and then Kraft, which acquired Oscar Mayer, realized early on that it really wasn't about the food. It was about the empowerment of the Lunchables. Because a kid getting Lunchables in his lunch and opening that up in the lunchroom was the envy of all his or her buddies. It had incredible badge value, and thus um, they came up with the slogan, all day you got to do what they say, but lunchtime is all yours. <clears throat> That's the first point about the Lunchables. The other thing is that as it morphed into more and more products, including pizza Lunchables, hamburger, hot dog Lunchables, taco Lunchables, all cold, not intended to be reheated, it really sort of ushered in fast food into the grocery store. And the Lunchables became sort of a gateway product for the emergence of fast food type items in the grocery store. And I think for nutritionists, that became a real turning point and an, and an issue of concern because we all still walk into the grocery store inherently instinctually trusting that we're going to get food that's healthy for us that will make us strong, even knowing that soda is there and candy and chips. But I think what, what the emergence and the entree of fast food does is sort of play to that inherent trust. And so suddenly people are finding themselves, you know, drawn to items they would typically get at a fast food restaurant and maybe be leery of, but finding them in the grocery store it you know it lets our guard down a bit. Yeah, I think that's that's, that's I would just think that before you said it. it. Maybe our guard is down when we go into the grocery store aisle, where it might be a little more up if we're going to the fast food. Yeah, and I think in so many ways too that I view this you know I view this book as as I'm hoping that it's not only a wake up call to the to the to the processed food industry, but also a book that could be empowering to people. Because once you know everything that the industry is sort of throwing at you the moment you walk into the grocery store, it can help level the playing field. And it certainly has for me in my own personal life, but I was just sort of you know, fascinated at every turn and every sort of fact-finding moment in the book at learning that everything that goes into the formulating, the marketing, advertising, I mean, nothing is left to chance. 
you just joined us, we are talking with Michael Moss. He is a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter for the New York Times. His book is Salt, Sugar, Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us. I want to have you talk a little bit about uh, this concept, uh, marketing concept of permission. This Mm. has to do with with Lunchables, but it also, um, you know, expands to other products. Uh, Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, there there was a there was a moment, and I I, I write about um, where Kellogg was looking for a new cereal, and you know put together a SWAT team, if you will, of of you know genius marketers from around the the company who sat around and and really kind of went to work um, trying to think outside of the box of coming up with a new hit cereal. And they glommed onto the, the Rice Krispie Treat, which is the kind of marshmallow Rice Krispie-based thing that had been around for a while that people made in their homes. And they wanted to make a Rice Krispie Treat cereal, and they asked their you know, food engineers to come up with it and try as they might. They couldn't come up with a marshmallow-type cereal that didn't turn to mush when you add milk. And mush is the death of cereal. Cereal has to have crunch and crackle when you eat it or people just won't like it um, you know, after you add milk to it. And then they kind of realize that people still love the cereal even without sort of you know, the real gooey marshmallow feel to it. They they loved it for the taste and the mimicry of the marshmallow. It reminded them of the of the marshmallow treat, especially among boomers who who might have had that as kids. And that was enough for consumers to like this product that they came up with. And what the industry calls that is permission, which is and permission is basically, you know, what we grant the industry in in terms of giving up one thing for another. So, you know, in many cases, we're willing to give up a healthy profile, a, you know, a truly, you know, real wholesome taste to a product in exchange for convenience or low cost. And again, that's what the industry calls permission. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, uh, you know, take this back to earlier part of last century, Maybe mom's, you know, gathers the ingredients, cooks them up. Um, you know, of course, she's trying to be healthy, but uh, I'm sure there were some health problems there as well. Mm. What, what is especially disturbing to you about how the processed food industry, as it's ramped up, is contributing to our, our health problems? Well, again, when you say disturbing, so I, I, I don't view the processed food industry as this evil empire intentionally setting out to make us obese or otherwise ill. I mean, the... And, and they can rightfully point to any one of their products and say, hey, that's not solely responsible for the obesity product, whether it's soda or my favorite potato chips. The problem sort of lies more in their collective zeal to do what companies do, which is make as much money as possible by selling as much product as possible. And also, you know, it lies in their deep dependence on salt, sugar, fat to achieve kind of this utter convenience, very low price, and and irresistible taste. So one of the things that I I think really troubles nutritionists is that, you know, the sweetness in food has migrated from the dessert aisle, the cookie aisle throughout the store so that today you find breads are sweet, um, yogurt 
can be as sweet as ice cream. Even pasta sauces can have the equivalent of a couple of Oreo cookies in a tiny half-cup serving. And to nutrition experts inside the industry, this is somewhat alarming because it's teaching kids to expect sweetness in everything they eat and setting a pattern. And as one scientist told me, exploiting the biology of the child who is hardwired for sweetness from the moment they're born. Every one of their 10,000 taste buds is, is, you know, just waiting for that sweet taste to, to send the signal to the pleasure center of the brain, which will then tell them, hey, eat more. We really love this. So, again, the thing to remember about obesity is that, you know, it can take as little as 100 or 150 calories um, per day extra beyond what you need to, to, uh, to cause you to gain weight if it's day in and day out. So the crisis has been called cause, and, you know, not by people necessarily just totally you know, gorging themselves on bags and bags of chips, but just sort of being drawn back to and lured by these foods time and time again and, and again, a key point is, you know, not just at mealtimes, but snacking has become a huge part of our society these days. And that plays right into the hands of the, of the processed food industry. You're listening to Access U Time, Tom Williams. We're talking this hour with Michael Moss, Pulitzer Prize winner, investigative reporter, author most recently of Salt, Sugar, Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us. And uh, we're going to take a brief break. When we come back, uh, I'll ask uh, Michael Moss to talk about where... Where we portion the blame, of course, you know, we're the ultimate uh, controllers of what goes into our bodies. And I'll have him uh, talk about a high drama. He uncovered a uh, a secret meeting among uh, food giants. I believe this is 1999, um, which uh, some executives uh, wanted to uh, maybe change course back after this break. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu hr. Stress is what you feel when you have to handle more than you are used to. When you are stressed, your body responds as though you are in danger. It makes hormones that speed up your heart, make you breathe faster, and give you a burst of energy. This is called the fight-or-flight stress response. Stress is normal, but if it happens too often or lasts too long, it can have bad effects. It can be linked to headaches, upset stomach, back pain, and trouble sleeping. It can weaken your immune system, making it harder to fight off disease. You probably can't delete all stress from your life, but you can get better at managing your stress. Start a stress journal, ask for help when you need it, do some deep breathing exercises, and get some exercise. Find something that works for you and enjoy this life you've been given. This is Angela Helm for the Be Well program at Utah State University. Be well, Utah. Thank you for listening. We'd like to remind you that though this program was pre-recorded, you can comment through email at upraccess at gmail.com, Twitter at hashtag AccessUtah, on our Facebook page, or at upr.org. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're spending the hour with Michael Moss. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times reporter, uh, author most recently of Salt, Sugar, Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us. And uh, he's talking about uh, the food uh, or the obesity epidemic in the United States where processed food uh, plays a part. 
And uh, you talked in the earlier part of the program, Michael Moss, about how, uh, you, you know, the, the food executives, the food companies themselves aren't solely to blame here. And individual companies, uh, perhaps not. And it's more of a sort of the need to compete with the, with the guy next door. And this is a, a big-time industry. I wonder if you could tell us about this. This is high drama. This is the, the beginning the of your book. The nature segment. of the industry is just phenomenal. And you walk into a grocery store, and everything seems mild and peaceful, and they have soft music playing. But behind the scenes, these food giants are fighting each other fiercely for space on the grocery shelf. And then space, and also space in your stomach, what they call stomach share, fiercely competitive and back in 1999, early in my research, I came across this incredible meeting of some of the CEOs and presidents of some of the largest food companies in North America got together for a rare and very private meeting to, to consider none other than the emerging obesity uh, crisis, which was smaller back in 1999. And what was really astonishing about the meeting is that none other than one of their own a senior executive at Kraft named Michael Mudd gets up armed with 114 slides and lays at their feet not only obesity but diabetes and high blood pressure and heart disease. He even links processed food to several types of cancers and does two things. One, he warns them that. It's a matter of if, not when, that the lawyers who went after big tobacco would come after them, if only to recover some of the huge costs associated, medical costs associated with obesity. And then two, pleaded with them to collectively do something to turn the corner on behalf of consumers. And collective is kind of the operative word because he knew that these companies were so competitive that you know if they didn't do this together, and they just sort of maybe relied on themselves to individually take some steps, they were going to get hammered by their competition in, in their respective aisles in the grocery store. And, uh, and you know, yeah, from right. his perspective, the meeting was an utter failure. I mean, the CEOs you know, reacted defensively, according to three, four people who were at the meeting, and I interviewed the CEO of, of General Mills stood up and sort of made some very forceful points that effectively ended the meeting. He said, look, you know, we are beholden both to consumers and to shareholders. We already offer people choice if they want low-fat this or low-fat that. We offer those. We are trying to make our products healthier by adding grains. But by no means are we going to walk out of this meeting and start dialing back on are the formulas of our mainline products just because you guys have some notion about, you know, obesity becoming an issue. Um, that would be irresponsible in his view, both to consumers and to shareholders. Is that why uh, you uh, quote uh, an executive or two, uh, or a former executive maybe, as saying that even if uh, government regulation ramped up and, and, and they were, you know, required to, to dial back, as it were, it wouldn't be possible. Yeah, no, I think, um, well, look, I mean, there's a, there's a couple things there. One, I was really stunned that the former CEO, Philip Morris, who gave me a rare interview, said, look, Michael, I'm no fan of government regulation, but what you're looking at here with the processed food industry is that they are so competitive that 
government regulation might give them the kind of cover that they need from Wall Street to actually do some, you know, affect some meaningful changes. And I thought it was, like, really fascinating. And Philip Morris actually plays a really interesting role in the book. They became the largest food company in North America by acquiring General Foods and then Kraft back in the 80s. And for the 80s and 90s, do what you would expect of a big tobacco company. They nudge and cajole and sometimes lend some of their own marketing tools to this food division. But starting the late 90s and early 2000s, Philip Morris becomes the first tobacco company to embrace regulation as a way of of staving off a complete loss of public trust. Philip Morris is polling heavily, and it sees public confidence in tobacco declining. And when they did that, the tobacco executives turned to their food division um, executives and said and warned them that you guys are going to face as great, if not greater, problem on salt, sugar, fat, obesity as we are now on nicotine and tobacco, um, and urge them to start sort of doing something to lessen their dependence on salt, sugar, fat. Yeah, that, that's an irony that really stands out. Yeah, I was I was really struck by that. So. So when you ask sort of, you know, what effect government regulation could have, I mean, I actually think that government regula- intervention of some sort could have a huge effect on the industry. And again, not viewing these companies as evil empires, but rather that they are staffed with cabals of well-meaning insiders. I think they're looking for anything they can to to make their products healthier as long as they can sell them, as long as people will buy them, and as long as they won't get hammered by their competitors who continue to make you know, the most loaded products. We're talking uh, in this hour with Michael Moss. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter for The New York Times. His book is Salt, Sugar, Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us. Uh, of course, this is, and, and I'm sure the company executives point out to, to you that uh, we are, as, a, as an industry, very heavily regulated. Um, but I wonder if you could talk about uh, 1960s. You, you point out that uh, the 1960s, consumers, especially women, sought to lower their intake of fat by switching to, uh, uh, to low-fat and skim milk. And, and government is involved here, isn't it? This, they had a glut of milk fat. I was really struck by how government agencies that are, that are supposed to be regulating these, these companies on behalf of consumers you know, in, how, how in many ways the companies are more powerful than, than the agencies. And in the case of the milk problem, you actually see the government, you know, teaming up with the industry to affect some nutrition policies that nutritionists find, you know, abhorrent. And, yes, so starting in the 60s, people began drinking less whole milk as a way of cutting back on their intake of saturated fat, which is a type of fat that's linked to heart disease if you get too much of it. They switched to skim milk. That left the dairy industry with a glut of whole milk and also the milk fat that they extract from, extract from whole milk to make the low-fat or skim milk. They began turning that whole milk and, and milk fat into butter and ice cream and increasingly cheese, and they made so much cheese it began piling up in massive amounts that the government then bought because it was it felt it needed to support the dairy industry. That went along until the early 80s when Ronald Reagan came into office and said, you know, with his, with his slimming down of the federal government mode 
and his secretary of agriculture discovered they had mounds and mounds of cheese growing moldy that was sitting there and said, enough, we're not going to buy any more of this surplus cheese or we're going to limit our purchases. But at the same time, Washington turned around and created a scheme for the dairy industry that enabled them to raise tens of millions of dollars every year to market cheese in order to get people to eat more. And and this is overseen by the Secretary of Agriculture. And it's not it's not just cheese eaten for itself, it's important to point out, like on a cheese sandwich or as an hors d'oeuvre for you know, before dinner. But what we're talking about is cheese that increasingly became used as an additive, sold to be added in foods for what the industry calls the mouthfeel of fat, which can be even more alluring and powerful than sugar in, in signaling the brain to eat more. And so now when you go into the dairy aisle, you see bags of cheese that's shredded and cubed and diced and stringed and tubbed, all converted into forms to encourage you to use it more as an ingredient in your home cooking. And then throughout the store, you see products with lots and lots of cheese in it as an additive, in many cases, products that didn't have cheese before, um, or frozen pizzas with cheese, not just on top, but in the crust itself. And so since the 70s, while we were cutting back on milk, our cheese consumption tripled, and it's actually been, and, and as and saturated fat sort of slipped back into our diet. And like sugar and like salt, we are collectively, on average, getting far more saturated fat than 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 we should be for our health. What do you, if this, if this stands as an emblem for something, what do you what do you think that is? Uh, the, the need you know, for greater I, government you know, regulation? I think or what? To some extent, it stands as an example that consumers can't rely on Washington or the government to always be protecting its health interests because there are there's a huge conflict of interest, especially at the Department of Agriculture, whose mission includes supporting agriculture, food companies, as well as protecting and advising consumers. Um, unfortunately, from the consumer standpoint, the vast majority of money that is spent uh, by the USDA goes toward promoting agriculture and food companies, and a minuscule amount goes to advising us on how to eat healthier. And a little later in the program, we're going to get into some of your suggestions on how we can uh, be better consumers. I wonder, uh, I was interested by the, the Philip Morris executives, and again, it's, it's a great irony. They're warning the food industry, as you were saying, that uh, the food industry might go down that road. And I wonder if you... If you agree, of course, the tobacco industry, there's a, a combination of uh, government regulation and increasing lawsuits and then also social pressure, which uh, is that where food is headed? No, I was really struck by actually how Kraft, uh, which was owned by Philip Morris at that time, actually did respond. And after failing to sort of get the industry to sort of take a collective action, Kraft struck out on its own with an anti-obesity initiative, and they did three amazing things. This is starting back in 2003. First, they looked at their marketing to kids and decided they were being too aggressive in marketing sugary products to kids during, especially during the Saturday morning TV hours, realizing from studies that show kids have trouble distinguishing between advertising and reality they then looked at their package labeling, decided they were being less than honest with consumers, 
especially when it came to those sort of snackable foods that had more than one serving in them. They, like other companies, had been disclosing um, the calories and the sugar and the fat and the salt content per serving, um, but their own data showed that many of us were eating the entire bag. And so Kraft, on its own, without any government intervention, started putting, started doing the math for consumers and listing the nutrient loads of its products for the entire package, actually right next to the individual serving, which was really incredible. But the most stunning thing is that they then turned to their food scientists and said, thou shalt no longer add as much salt, sugar, fat as you want to in perfecting the allure of your products. They put caps on the amount of these three ingredients their food scientists could use which was really sort of revolutionary. And as one craft official said to me, look, up to that point, we had spent every waking hour of our lives making our products as utterly attractive as possible. And here we were suddenly saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, maybe possibly subliminally, maybe we've gone too far and we need to be really aware that collectively, in this current environment of people being stressed and and needing convenience foods, we, we might be encouraging people to, to be over-consuming and need to do something about that. That was just sort of an extraordinary moment inside inside the industry itself. But, of course, for this to, to work industry-wide, everybody in the industry has got to go along, right? Well, that's a problem. And Kraft actually almost immediately ran into trouble in the cookie aisle where a competitor came along with a cookie that was bigger and richer and fatter than Kraft's. Um, they, Kraft tried to sort of hold the line on its caps um, using cocoa that wasn't fatter but richer to try to fend itself and fend off this competitor. Ultimately, though, they had to give in a little bit, and that's when you start seeing the real kind of emergence of of this plethora of Oreo cookies um, that are bigger and richer and 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 in all kinds of permutations, um, um, you know, individually any one of these new cookies isn't going to wipe out someone's diet, but 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 the whole phenomenon sort of looked like you know the company was sort of falling off the wagon on its on its own diet. It's again, it's very very difficult for these companies to take action, meaningful action on, on the part of consumers unilaterally without getting hammered uh, here and there in the grocery store. We're talking with Michael Moss. He's winner of the Pulitzer Prize, investigative reporter for the New York Times. His book is Salt, Sugar, Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us. Uh, a little bit later, we're going to be talking about the science behind this. This is fascinating and, and, and a bit troubling, uh, with words like mouthfeel and, uh, and bliss point. Um, I wonder, you know, you portion the blame, I, you know, and you alluded to this a little earlier. Doesn't the ultimate responsibility come down to me as a consumer? The, the, if, if I and, you know, a million other people were actually purchasing lower uh, salt, lower sugar, lower fat items, then the companies would follow, wouldn't they? You know, it's just really, it's a bit of a chicken and egg thing. I have, to, I have to say, the companies have done research, a lot of it's product placement, for example. The companies have done research showing that when we walk into an aisle at the grocery store, um, they put devices on people's heads to measure their eye movements, and they know that our eyes will gravitate first to the center part of the aisle at eye level. And so that is, by calculation, 
where companies tend to put their sweetest, fattest products, knowing that we'll gravitate there first. And look, to some extent, you know, the industry acknowledges that it has helped shape the palates of of people, especially young kids. And one of the things that, again, it's most troubling to nutritionists inside and outside of the industry is how you know, sweet taste has migrated through the grocery store. So again, so it's not just ice cream that's sweet, it's now yogurt and breads and pasta sauces, which in the words of one scientist has you know, exploited the biology of the child and teaching them to like sweetness no matter where they go. Um, and again, I think the really important thing to remember here is how calculated everything is by the industry and how the playing field when you walk into the grocery store is anything but level for consumers. I wonder if we could talk briefly about um, about, the, about the semantics, which gets into important points. Uh, companies call it allure. You, yes. co- you could call it addiction. You know, I, I use the A word sparingly in the book because there is no word the industry hates more. And they do, they do justifiably argue that there are some technical thresholds um, for drug, you know, for drug addiction that, that food uh, addiction, if you will, you know, doesn't have. They prefer words like craveable, snackable, moorishness. These are not English majors, mind you, but I find actually those words every bit as revealing. Um, the bottom line is when they're, when they're doing everything to maximize their allure, they want people not just to like their product, but to come back and want more and more of it. And, you know, in any number of areas, I was lucky enough to spend time with their leading food scientists to learn just how they do it. It's really pretty extraordinary. Um, I got to know and spend time with a legend in the industry named Howard Moskowitz, who was trained in high math and then experimental psychology at Harvard. He has created some of the largest icons for the grocery uh, industry, and he walked me through his recent creation of a new soda flavor for Dr. Pepper. And to come up with a flavor that would be a guaranteed hit for the company, he started out with 61 separate formulations of sweetness, each one just slightly different than the other, subjected those to more than 3,000 taste tests around the country, then took the data and put it into his computer and did his high math regression analysis thing and came up with the very precise optimum amount of sugar that would send us over the moon, not too little, not too much. And as he explained to me, you know, our liking of sugar isn't infinite. Um, anybody who likes sugar in their coffee can do this experiment themselves. Just keep adding sugar until you get to the point where you like, and if you start adding more, you'll eventually get to the yuck place. And so Howard explained to me that our liking for sugar can be charted on what looks like a bell curve that kids will see when they're, you know, graded in school. And at the very top of the curve is the optimum amount. And he helped coin the term that the industry uses internally, which is the bliss point. The optimum, you know, products that have been engineered to have the optimum amount of sweetness will hit what the industry calls the bliss point. Basically, will just make us happy eating them. And uh, I believe the industry does similar things with fat, right? There's a mouthfeel? Yes. 
So fat, it turns out, is, you know, well, as we know, is not one of the five basic senses that Aristotle wrote about. It's a feeling. Um, um, there's a nerve ending that comes, comes down from the brain almost to the top roof of your mouth that picks up the sensation of fat. It's that warm, gooey feeling of biting into a toasted cheese sandwich every bit as powerful, if not more so, than sugar. Um, that will send signals through the same neurological channels to the pleasure center of the brain saying, this tastes really great. In some ways, fat is even, you know, raises even, even bigger issues for people trying to control their weight, um, especially because when fat is in the solid form, which tends to be the saturated fat, which you are told to cut back on, the brain is less apt to detect it as fat and is less apt to, you know, then put the brakes on your eating. And also when fat is added to foods and you can't see it in the food, likewise the brain tends to let it slide and not tell you to stop eating. And fat, as we know, has twice as many calories as sugar, so it can be problematic from a weight standpoint. We're talking on Access Utah with Michael Moss. He is author most recently of Salt, Sugar, Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us. We're talking about the book. Michael Moss is a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter for the New York Times. In the final segment of the program coming up, we're going to get Michael Moss to tell us uh, how we as consumers can be better consumers, counteract some of this uh, this marketing savvy and scientific savvy and, and eat healthier. More following the break. Waste not. A small drip leak on a faucet leaks up to 15 gallons per day. That's 450 per month. So make sure to check your faucets regularly. Another tip, turn off the water while brushing your teeth and save 25 gallons a month. Waste not is made possible by the Logan City Public Works Water Conservation Department. Information at loganutah.org slash publicworks. Are you looking for clear and concise car advice? Fourth gear would have been a better choice, but now that you've melted the engine, it probably, <laughs> probably doesn't matter. Point. Did you bring this over here? No, no, it's a, it, it was a rental car. Oh! <laughs> Boy, there's another reason. <laughs> reason number 11, that you should never buy a rental car. Don't miss the fun this week. Join us for Car Talk. Saturday mornings at 10 on Utah Public Radio. To Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams, and uh, just wanted to give you the email. We're on tape in the program today because of uh, Michael Moss's schedule. We uh, recorded this uh, conversation about an hour ago. Um, but uh, you can uh, join the conversation at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, also on Facebook and Twitter and on our website, upr.org. Stephen Beaverdam, Arizona, uh, joins the conversation. Thank you, Steve. Uh, he sends us a link to a New York Times article. This is from April 28th, newyorktimes.com, titled Venture Capitalists Are Making Bigger Bets on Food Startups. It's by Michael Moss's colleagues there at the Times, Jenna Wortham and Claire Kane Miller. And uh, Steve uh, pulls out what he calls the money quote. Here it is from this New York Times article. There are pretty significant environmental consequences and health issues associated with sodium or high fructose corn syrup or eating too much red meat, said a partner at Kosla Ventures, which has invested in a half dozen food startups. Continuing the quote, I wouldn't bet my money that Cargill or ConAgra are going to innovate here. I think it's going to take startups to do that. 
So thank you to that, and that and that uh, article will be good reading there from the New York Times. That's Steve in Beaverdam, Arizona. You can join the conversation at upraxis at gmail.com. Back with Michael Moss, winner of the Pulitzer Prize. He's an investigative reporter for the New York Times. His new book is Salt, Sugar, Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us. Uh, poured over, I don't know, Mr. Moss, millions of documents um, and uh, got interviews with uh, current and former executives. Very interesting and we're talking about the book uh, Salt, Sugar, Fat, How the Food Giants uh, Hooked Us. I wonder, uh, the chapter on uh, Coca-Cola was very interesting to me. It, it seemed to be emblematic, a, a good example uh, of why companies um, in this competitive, very competitive field uh, sort of went in this direction. So I wonder if you could first tell us first about what Robert Woodruff and, and, and the founding of the founding or the early days of Coke to where it became what it has become today. And then Jeffrey Dunn, who, mm-hmm. who uh, was a true believer and, and then had a change of heart. You know, the genius of Coke goes back to the early days when they discovered that one of the smartest ways to sort of imprint a brand, especially on kids, was at one of those moments when kids are just having the fun of their lives. And in this case, Coke saw the opportunity at sports venues. They realized when, you know, especially the son or daughter went with their father or their mother to to a ball game and drank a Coke, that moment would be imprinted on them in ways that sort of no amount of advertising could achieve. And so Coke set out to put itself in all of the big sporting venues around the, the, the country. It was just an ingenious sort of stroke of marketing strategy. I spent time with a former president of Coca-Cola North America, Latin America, named Jeffrey Dunn. He worked for the company for 20 years. It was one of their fiercest warriors. He walked me through um, you know, the company's pioneering of the supersize me phenomena. It's targeting of what it calls heavy users, which are the 20% of its customers who uh, drink 80% of the, of the soda, um, which it realized it can be more cost-effective in directing its marketing campaigns at, at that 20%. Didn't call them customers. Um, you know, they called them heavy users, which is very, very um, very revealing just in sort of the terminology. And then also Jeffrey walked me through sort of the targeting of kids, especially teenagers at convenience stores. Um, Coke appreciated, as does the entire snack industry, soda industry, that when kids walk into a a corner store with their own spending money and start choosing which product to buy, that is apt to lock them into that brand for the rest of their life. And so that's why you see this phenomenon called up and down the street marketing, where the snack food trucks you know, drive around from corner store to corner store, placing and stocking their products and making sure they're up front where, where kids can, can buy for them. Jeffrey had a complete change of heart in the early 2000s. He went to Brazil with his managers, saw Coke, was introducing Coke to some of the emerging middle-class neighborhoods there in smaller package sizes, more affordable. And as Jeffrey recalls, there was almost a voice from the sky that told him, hey, um, you know, these people need a lot of things, but it's probably not another Coca-Cola. He came back to Atlanta, tried to nudge the company toward more healthy products, including bottled water, ultimately left the company. And I caught up with him recently where he was doing what he called his karmic debt 
trying to sell none other than baby carrots using a page from the playbook of the snack food industry to try to market fruits and vegetables in an exciting kind of way that they're now just marketing. One of the issues in the grocery store is that all of the advertising, all the marketing power, the genius of Madison Avenue goes towards selling and promoting the highly processed foods. Almost none of that goes toward fruits and vegetables, which remain you know, utterly boring to many people. So after having done the research, talked to all these people, what do you think the solutions are? You know, a few things. Um, from a consumer standpoint, there are some things I think you can do just today. Um, and, and this is working in my life. You know, my, I have two boys, 8 and 13, my wife, who are walking bliss points for sugar. My wife, Eve, works outside of the home. There's no way we can end our own dependence on convenience foods entirely. We're more about sort of trying to gain control over them rather than letting them control us. The um, first thing, you walk in the door, the companies are trying to do everything they can to get you to make a spontaneous decision. That's why you often now see soda in coolers by the checkout counter. So the old axiom, make a list and stick to it, is really helpful. Two, shop the perimeters of the stores. That's where you'll find the fresh fruits and vegetables. And most of the highly processed foods will be in the center of the store. As I mentioned, be wary of the middle of the aisles at eye level. That's where the highest, um, that's where the highest concentrations of, of sugar, fat, fat, sugar, fat, salt tend to be. Um, look low, look high for the healthier versions of products. And also, you know, engage your kids. The other day we said to our kids, hey, let's try to limit ourselves to cereals that have five grams or less sugar per serving. And we now find when we go into the store, it's a bit of an Easter egg hunt for them. They'll pull the boxes off the shelf and they'll read the fine print and they'll look for those brands that have less sugar. And they're there. Typically, they'll have to reach low or I'll have to reach high for them to get them. But look, plain Cheerios, Total, Special K, all have reasonable amounts of sugar. There are other companies selling products with, with far fewer ingredients overall um, that can fit into a healthier diet. And I think it's so critical to engage kids in the conversation because not only would they be more apt to eat those products, but they'll be more apt to like them, I found, too, when they've been, when they've been involved in the decision. Do you think uh, growth of uh, movements like local food movement can have an impact here? Yeah, I think all of these things are contributing to our increasing awareness of and concern about what we're putting in our bodies. And I think ultimately that's what's going to drive the industry to make some meaningful changes. I happen to think it's going to take people getting louder about those concerns, again, because of the pressures that companies face from Wall Street. But ultimately, I think it's going to have to be consumers pushing the companies to really make meaningful, deep changes in the profile of their of their products. And I wonder, you, you made reference to this earlier, but I, I wonder, I think a lot of parents are concerned about the specific marketing aspect, which is the advertising to kids. It's really difficult to walk into the, into especially the cereal aisle now, and still see, you know, cartoon characters being used to pitch, you know, the most sugary cereals. And then you walk over to the fruits and vegetable aisle, 
and you know it's no surprise your kids are totally bored and tugging you back to the center of the store where the advertising and the pitches and the slogans are just are just much more effective or even present i mean you, nobody you know they're not using cartoon characters to sell apples or bananas um or even carrots um so that that's a real issue for parents. Even when you want to do the right thing, um, peer pressure from kids is, is tremendous. It sounds like, though, you're, you're having some success with your children counteracting some of this. Yeah, I was just going to mention, you know, the other day my, my youngest, Will, um, who just turned nine, actually came, came in and said, hey, Michael, you know, all my friends get a Capri Sun every day. And Capri Sun is this, you know, is this packaged drink that – Hats off to, to for Kraft to dialing back on on the sugar somewhat recently, but you know it used to have as much sugar as soda. And one of the things to be careful in the grocery store is the word fruit, because fruit often means fruit concentrate, or or even fruit juice can be just as caloric as some soda. So you have to be aware from a, from a calorie standpoint about fruit as you do other kinds of sugars. But I said to him, and, and he seemed to really get this, which is, or actually he said to me, look, I don't want a Capri Sun every day, Dad, but now and then would be great. So, you know, every couple of weeks we slip a Capri Sun into his lunch box. I noticed the other day, though, that after he has it, it, he tends to sort of stick the empty package in the mesh part, outer part of his lunch box, so his pals could see that he wasn't totally weird and deprived of sugary products. So again, you know, kids are struggling with peer pressure as well. And so we're not about banning these foods with their kids, but again, just trying to get them to dial back, you know, enough to and recognize, you know, the dangers of eating too much of either salt, sugar, or fat. Our guest for the hour has been Michael Moss, Pulitzer Prize winning New York Times investigative reporter. The book just out is Salt, Sugar, Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us. Mr. Moss, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And uh, for producers uh, Addison Pace and Danny Hayes, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening to Access Utah.